moments where truly everything begins to fade. It's importance, it's necessity, it's, it's drive when it just comes to seeing you. And oh my goodness, when we do witness you, Jesus, in your beauty, in your perfection, in the myriad of ways you reveal yourself, when it's you that we seek and it's you that we find, everything else truly does fade away. And it, it becomes so much less in importance because it compares to you. And so we're so grateful that you constantly bring us to your heart. You constantly lead us, Lord, to the throne that we can behold you. Our Father, you and your glory and the Lamb, this Lion, the Redeemer of our souls. And that we can, again, just sing this song, the beautiful song with all of heaven, worthy, worthy is the Lamb, worthy is he who sits on the throne and declare your worth. Oh, Father, just draw us to that point, that necessity of seeking you above all things as we seek first the kingdom of God, your righteousness, all these other things will be added. So knit us to that truth. Draw us to your heart. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, saints, if you would open up your Bibles, please, to the gospel of John chapter 20. John chapter 20 as we continue our journey through this gospel here this evening. It is a beautiful thing, and I don't think that's ever happened where we find ourselves as you know, we, we are going to be coming up to Resurrection Sunday this Sunday and actually going to be looking at John 20. I don't think that's ever happened since we've been here in 20-some years of ministry. But it's going to happen this Sunday, and I'm grateful for it. Tonight we're going to try to get through the first 18 verses of this passage. And so I want you to, let's just start out by just reading through this first part of it. John chapter 20, verse 1, and now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, and saw the linen clothes lying there, and yet he did not go in. And Simon Peter came in following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. It's a beautiful thing to look at this first section here and to understand what the Lord is trying to open up. And so what this passage is we, we look to this as far as the, the resurrection. Um, more importantly, it would be the empty tomb. 
and then it would be the appearance. These are the two things that are here. Understand that no man or woman actually witnessed the resurrection. They didn't see the resurrection. Well, what they saw is they bore witness to the resurrection by witnessing the risen Christ. So when he's, uh, when he's around, when he's alive, when he's, he's here, he's powerful, bearing witness to that says what? He was resurrected. And this is what they did. They, they bore witness to the risen Christ. And this is so important to recognize that, that this is what Scripture teaches over and over again about the witness of the risen Christ. We look to this empty tomb, and it's an incredible thing. It's a beautiful thing. But what really is important is this. Within the empty tomb, you know, there's, there's you know, um, objects of his victory. There are the linen clothes that are there, the, the, the kerchief over his face that's, that's folded off to the side. There's trophies, if you will, of his resurrection in the tomb. But the real trophy, the beautiful thing, is not in the tomb. You understand? It's just an empty box now. Beautiful package, beautiful thing to look at, beautiful thing to represent, but the, the witness is that it is empty. I want you to see that when it comes to the resurrection, and something that you should be aware of, I want to give you four verses to focus on. Just jot it down. If you're a note taker, just jot these down. You can look them up later. But I want you to see that within the resurrection, what Peter says is this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, he makes a statement, a unique statement, an interesting statement, where he says, whom God raised up. It's a unique term when he says, whom God raised up. A couple of the verses I want you to be aware of, because when you look at God in the resurrection... What I'm going to do is I'm going to share you three verses. The first verse is that the Father has his part in the resurrection. The second verse, because it's easier to turn to, is that the Spirit has his part in the resurrection. And then the third verse, because we're going to go back to the Gospel of John, the Son has his part in the resurrection. Peter here in Acts just says, you know, God has raised him up, and, and he makes that statement but in Romans 6, verse 4, this is the one where it says the Father. It says this, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. So understand, when, when Peter says God did it, he's talking about, yes, God the Father has his part. In Romans 8, verse 11, it says this, But the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So we understand that here it talks about the Spirit being that which raises his, him from the dead. And of course, we've looked at this a few weeks ago. We were in John chapter 10. And in John 10, verse 17, the Lord makes this statement. He said, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life 
that I may take it up again. And in verse 18 of John 10, he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. So understand that when it comes to the resurrection, and I love this, the Trinity participates in the resurrection. This is important to note and, and where we begin to look at this understanding where when the Lord is risen, the Father, the Son, the Spirit all have their part in this resurrection. What John declares in his gospel here in chapter 20, verse 1, now on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is unique. Now, too often we, as we look to our week, we think the first day of the week is Monday, and that's not true. If you actually look at the calendar, the calendar goes from what? Sunday is the first day, and then Saturday is the last day, and that's what God does. The first day is on a Sunday, and then the Sabbath rest, according to what God is, is there in the Old Testament, the Sabbath rest was on the seventh day. That's a Saturday. Now, what we recognize here is it's the first day of the week. Christ did not rise on the Sabbath. He rose on a Sunday. And it's important to realize that when we come here, you know, on, on Friday at noon, when we do our Good Friday service, we're going to recognize that you have Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday, that he's three days. And there's an understanding that when the Lord in his burial, there is a great understanding that he's there for three days. And that's why it's important where in verse 20 says it's the first day of the week. Don't just look to say it's, it's a Sunday, yes, but it's the third day. Keep in mind that there in John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, John would make this declaration. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us? since you do these things. When Christ cleansed the temple, they're like, what authority do you have? What sign are you going to show us? Because you're taking authority to do these things. So in John 2, verse 19, John 2, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, they thought he was talking about the, the physical temple that was there, but he was talking about, of course, the, the temple of the Spirit. And so the Jews were saying, listen, it's taken 40 years to build this temple, and you're going to build it up in three days? And he says, no, I'm talking about the, the, the temple of my body. And so it's important that, that three days is a unique and type that is taught throughout Scripture. I want to share with you just a couple of passages. The first, and I know you guys know this, in Genesis chapter 22. There is a type that came out, and within this passage, it opens up where Abraham is about to take his son Isaac, and he's going to sacrifice him to the Lord. Something unique happens in this passage. Now, what I'm going to do is, while you're there in... Um, Genesis 22, I want to read to you a companion verse found in Hebrews 11. 
So I'm going to read Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. You're going to turn to Genesis 22. But in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, it makes this statement. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he whom he who and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God, verse 19, was able to raise him up even from the dead from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So what Hebrews is saying is this passage that we're about to look at in Genesis 22 is a type, it's a shadow, it's an understanding of here Christ being raised from the dead. And so in Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. <clears throat> and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go, into, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on a on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So he tells Abraham, you need to take your son, your only son. And he only considers one son. He doesn't consider the other, doesn't consider Ishmael. He only considers Isaac, his son, the son of the promise. He says, take this son, the son that you love, offer him on a mountain. And it makes a statement where in verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took his two young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And now it declares this, verse 4, and on the third day. So understand what's happening. God has said, take now your son, sacrifice him. At that point, to Abraham, his son is now dead. And then you have the third day. Now on the third day he goes, and this is where when he's about to sacrifice, all of a sudden now where he stretches out his hand in verse 10, he takes a knife to slay his son. The angel of the Lord called and said to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He says, do not lay a hand on the lad nor do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. At this point, we see that Abraham's son, who was dead for three days, is now alive. And this is what we begin to see as this beautiful type as three days, where Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. There's another point in the scripture where there is a sign of three days. And of course, you know this one. It's found in the book of Jonah. And in Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, it opens up, The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So in chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 10, says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God for the belly of the fish, and in verse 10, so the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. So within this, we begin to see that there comes the second type, and where Jesus had made that statement in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, 
where he said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So this whole thing of three days is a necessary piece of the scripture to understand. Why? When you're dead for three days, you're really dead. Now, you, you might be dead for three minutes and come back to life. I don't know if you could be dead for three hours and come back to life. But when you're dead for three days, you're, you're dead. But the amazing thing is here, it opens up the truth that it is on the third day. Not only the third day, but it is on the first day of the week. Keep in mind that here, the disciples initially aren't quite sure what's going on. They are still hiding out. They're still not openly revealing themselves. But there is a passage, and I want you to be aware of what is going on, because in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, a couple of verses that we've read before, but I want to read it again just so that you can kind of gravitate and understand what was happening here, that there, there, there comes a point We're in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of the preparation of the chief priests, the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night, steal him away, and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. I love Pilate's response, verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as sure as you know how. And then they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So as we look to this, keep in mind that here, the religious leaders, you got to stop him from rising. you got to stop him from rising. Make sure that he doesn't rise. Well, the problem being is what? <laughs> you can't stop God. you got both the Father, you got the Spirit, you got the Son all involved in this resurrection. And so understand, he is going to rise. As we look to the Scripture... There's a passage in Romans chapter 4. I want to read it to you. It's just a couple of verses. I want to read verses 20 through 25. It says this, speaking of Abraham, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Now, Abraham, as we're looking at this, receives a promise to God and recognizes, God, you can fulfill the promise. What is that promise? Well, earlier on in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, there is this promise, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who, whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and call those things which do not exist as though they did. In other words, Abraham's body being dead, Sarah's body being dead, God says, it's alive. God has the ability to make what is dead alive. And then the promise of what isn't yet as it was, was what? Was Isaac. So that was a promise. 
And so in verse 21 of Romans 4, he's being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. As God had spoken over and over in the scripture through the types that you'd only be what? You're going to be dead, but only for three days, and then you're going to come back. There's this resurrection that's going to happen. And therefore, it was accounted for him for righteousness. Now, verse 23 of Romans 4, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also that it might be imputed to us, we who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And this is a promise that we have to stand on and believe in that it was for his sake. It was for his sake. And so not just for him, but what? For us as well, that we can believe that this promise that God says the resurrection of Christ is for what? For our justification. In other words, it's the evidence of our forgiveness of our sins. This is what he's done. And so it's imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. So here they're saying, you got to stop it. You got to stop it. You got to stop it. And the scripture says what? You're not going to stop it. Pilate was wise. Go ahead and make it as sure as you know how. You can't stop it. Now, not only, keep in mind, not only did they want it stopped, they couldn't stop it. But you have to understand that it is the resurrection becomes a witness of the life that we have. The death doesn't hold us down. I want to share with you a passage that Paul taught to the church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, he makes this declaration. And it's a beautiful thing that he opens up. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. And I preach to you, which I've also received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then in verse 4 he says, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And it talks about the witnesses. He was seen by Cephas and then by the 12. And he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the presence, but some have fallen asleep. After this, he was seen by James and all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, he was seen by me. It's an incredible thing to see the witness of this resurrection. And as we look to the evidence of this resurrection, Paul will go on and I love what he says after he says there's many, many witnesses of this. But then in 1 Corinthians, as he goes through in chapter 15, he drops down to verse 12. And I want you to listen to as I read to you verses 12 through 19. Paul makes a statement. Now, if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, he says, then Christ is not risen. Do you understand the very fact that he rose and there's witnesses of his resurrection says one thing. Guess what, guys? You too will be a witness of this resurrection. And if he rose from the dead, you also will rise. You also will be resurrected. 
Now, he says in verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, of whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in only this life we have hope in Christ, we are all men most pitiable. He says, our faith is anchored in the resurrection. Our faith is anchored in the very fact that Jesus Christ has died for our sins. I want you to just follow with me, if you will. If you're a note taker, just jot them down as we go through them. But I want to share with you a little bit of what Peter does in the book of Acts. And what Peter does in the book of Acts is, is phenomenal when you think about it in this way. What he's going to do is this. He's going to talk again, again, and again of one thing. The risen Christ it's about Christ being raised from the dead. Now, not just the empty tomb, but about the risen Christ himself. He declares this in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through um, verse 38. And I want to focus on just two verses within it, verse 24 and 32. But, but listen to this message that Peter gives to the, the nation of Israel. He goes, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst. And in your, and yourselves also know him being delivered by the determinant purposes and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands of crucified and put to death. And then he says this in verse 24, whom God raised up, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord forever before my face. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced. My tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption." In other words, because he's raised, I raised. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him with the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up up the Christ to sit on his throne. Verse 31, he foreseeing this spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul would not be left in Hades, nor did his flesh take corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. It's so incredible to see here this incredible word that, that Peter gives to the nation of Israel. Now, let me just give you a couple of verses. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 15. Or let me just simply read it to you. He says this, And you killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. In verse 26 of the same chapter, he says this, To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Over and over again, he makes a statement. In chapter 4, verse 10 of Acts, he declares this, 
Let it be known to you all that the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. In chapter 5, verse 30, he makes this declaration. He says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Everything is always about raising, raising, raising. Even when he went to Cornelius there of the Gentiles, he would make this statement in Acts chapter 10, verse 40. He would say, him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Do you understand the key that Peter is saying of their faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The key that Paul is saying of the faith is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is what's happening here in our text. Because it simply makes this declaration in John 20, verse 1, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And then she ran. She came to Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. I want you to see something about Mary Magdalene. And it's important to note that she's not alone and, and so recognize this. I want to share with you one verse in our text here, John 20, verse 2. Highlight one word, if you will. It says this, She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And notice what she says, and we. So she wasn't the only one that was here. So keep in mind that she is not the only one. Now, she's there at the cross. And I think it's important for you to recognize And in John 19, verse 25. Now there stood by the cross Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. So she's there at the cross. And as she's there at the cross, what happens is this. We recognize, according to Mark's gospel, and it's important to recognize that all these gospels have little tidbits of which is there, but I want you to recognize what Mark's gospel says of her. In Mark chapter 15, in verse 42, it says this, Now when evening had come because of the preparation that it is before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the tomb. Now note what it says in verse 47 of Mark 15. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Josie's, observed where he was laid. And so we recognize that she was there. When she was there at the crucifixion, she didn't walk away from the body of Jesus. Do you understand? Jesus died, and she was still there. They took him down. She was still there. And she followed those who carried him away, and she was still there. She had one goal. I want to be near Jesus. That was it. That was her whole complete goal. And, and so what happens is this, as, as she's there with the Lord, as she's there recognizing, I want to be with the Lord, what we see is this. 
this Mary Magdalene. In Mark chapter 16, verse 1, Now when the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. So they now come, Mary comes with, with the other women, and so she comes to anoint the body of Jesus. She comes to fulfill the anointing process. Verse 9 of Mark 16 says something amazing about Mary Magdalene. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast, cast seven demons. It's amazing. That, that this is the one of, of whom that he had cast out the demons, and she's the one who now says, I want to be as close to you as possible. There's a passage that I, I just love it. You could just listen to it. Don't even have to jot it down, but I want you to recognize that there's a truth, and you know this truth. And it's found there in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 47, where Jesus said about the woman who had anointed his feet and, and had wiped, you know, washed his feet with her tears and dried them with the hair of her head. He said about her in verse 47 of Luke 7, he says, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You know what? You can see why she loved much. She's been forgiven much. She had seven demons, seven demons removed from her. She has this love for the Lord. And so we recognize her heart. As we see her, I want you to recognize just a couple of things. That when Mary first comes, according to where we already read there in Mark's gospel, she came to anoint the body. As she comes to anoint the body, keep in mind that Mary comes to the tomb to prepare the body of Jesus, and she sees initially that the tomb is rolled away. Now, she comes with the other women. We know that she's not alone, according to Mark's gospel, and the fact that in John 20, verse 2, she says, we do not know, saying there were other women with me, but I'm here, I'm the one that's telling you. So on the first day of the week, verse 1 of John 20, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now what she's aware of is this. She goes, she recognized the tomb has been opened, that the stone has been rolled away. And as she comes to the understanding of what's happening here, that, that she leaves. Now, the way that Matthew declares this in his gospel is this. In Matthew 28, listen to me to the first eight verses. After the Sabbath of the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came back and rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat on it. And his countenance was like the lightning, his clothes as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him, and he became like dead man. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is cross-crucified. He's not here, he's risen. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Indeed, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to bring his disciples' word. Now, 
In this, we see that this says that there were some of the women who initially went there that began to see that eventually there was this angel sitting on the tomb says, hey, listen, he's not here, he's risen. Most scholars believe that this happens directly after Mary. As she starts coming to the tomb, Mary Magdalene, the first thing that she does is this. She sees from a distance the stone is rolled away. She now turns and runs. She goes to to Peter and, and, and to John. It says this. Back in our text in, in John 20, on the first day of the week, Mary mainly went to the tomb early, and while it was still dark, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Doesn't talk about the angel at this point. Doesn't talk about the stone at this point. She, she sees from a distance it's rolled away, and then she ran and she came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. and said, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Now, her whole understanding is that the stone is rolled this tomb is open, someone took his body. This is her thought process as she now comes to the tomb. Now, one of the things that I do want you to be aware of is this, that her desire in coming to the tomb for the first time was to do something. She came to anoint the body. And and I want you to just Put that somewhere in the back of your head, maybe the, the you know, uh, a front file in your brain, because you're going to see there's three things that we're going to note as far as people coming to Jesus. The first, Mary wants to do something for him. The next, Peter and John are going to be wanting information about him. And then lastly, Mary's only going to want one thing. I want to see him. I don't care what it takes. I want to see him. Now, when she wants to do something for him, at this point, the Lord doesn't reveal himself to her yet. So what we see is this. She sees from a distance the tomb is open. She leaves the other women. She goes to Peter and John. She ran. She came to Simon Peter the other and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. So when she now comes to the disciples, she sees the tomb is rolled away. She sees the tomb is open. And they say they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. He's now gone. She, she hadn't witnessed it. She hadn't looked at it. But she, she sees that it's open. And she's recognized something's wrong here as she goes. Now, when we see this, that she came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, we now see a beautiful picture here. Because at the crucifixion, Peter had already denied the Lord three times, left and wept bitterly. John was at the crucifixion where Jesus says, Mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And he was there. From the time of the crucifixion till the time of the resurrection, John had gone and sought out Peter. And I love this, that when she finds Peter, she finds the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And of course, John never refers to himself in the first person, always in this way, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And therefore, Peter went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So we see that Peter now launches himself, starts running to the tomb, and then the other disciple also follows Peter and goes to the tomb. Verse 4 says, they both ran together. 
So they're there cruising to the tomb, and then it makes this statement. And why John does this, I'm not quite certain. He says, and the other disciple, speaking of himself, not, not openly, not outwardly, but the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Why does he do that? Why does he say, you know, he doesn't say, and because Peter was old and slow, and I'm young and, and, and fit, he, he comes to the tomb. But, but he does make a statement that, that he outruns him. And so whether John is just kind of hinting at the fact that he's faster than Peter and, and wants us to recognize it, or he's simply just saying, listen, I, I got there first. But I want you to recognize that that's not the end of the story. But it does say that he outran Peter, came to the tomb first, and he, this is John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there and did not go in. As he's there, he's kind of looking, he's regarding, he's trying to see what exactly is going on. But when, when he looks, it's, it's this stop kind of begin to think about it and see what's going on. But he doesn't go in. Now, whether he doesn't go in um, because he doesn't want to be defiled, there's other scholars who say that he doesn't go in because he allows Peter to go in as a sign of respect to Peter, but he stops at the door. Now, because he's there, he can see into the tomb. Now, if you've ever been to Israel and you recognize how the tomb is, there's a garden there, a beautiful garden, not far from Golgotha. And what happens is this, there's an empty tomb that's there in that garden. And the doorway is only about maybe three, three and a half feet high. So you got to stoop to go in. And when you walk into this tomb, there's this middle, there's this front section, and then you look off to the side, you look off to the right, and then they have an area where the, the floor is lowered. And so you have an area that the floor is lowered, and then you have two shelves on either side, not too high, but enough to lie a body on. And so you can see that he can stand by the door, and he can look in, he can peer in, and he can kind of see off to the side, and he understands as he's looking in, he sees the linen clothes there, yet he doesn't go in. Verse 6 says, Simon Peter came and followed him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. Now, as, as Peter goes in, he doesn't just look as regarding what's going on. He comes in and he saw the linen the clothes. Peter begins to theorize. He begins to really ponder and say, what in the world is going on? He's studying this. He's trying to determine what's going on. He's discerning. Now, when he comes in, he sees again the linen clothes. Both of them see the linen clothes. It's important to make a note, and, and I know that some people haven't met, have an issue with how women were treated back in the Old Testament and how women were treated in society back in the times of the scriptures, understand that that wasn't Jesus's heart. And Jesus did so much to elevate women. Now, there are scholars who literally had made the statement that you cannot believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the witness was a woman or was women. So what God does is this. He actually allows these two men to come and to witness the cloth. They both have the same witness. They both say the linen clothes were lying there. 
Now understand, if somebody would have come and taken the body, why would have they unwrapped the linen and then laid it out as if the body had evaporated through the linen? That's what it is. The linen is lying there, which means that basically the, the linen is in the shape of a body without a body. And so both of them seize the linen there. Now, if a thief would come and take the body, why would he unwrap all the linen just to take the body and then lay the ribbon, the linen back out, wrapping it and laying it flat on the tomb? That wouldn't make any sense. So when they see the linen, there's a statement. John looks and he's regarding. Peter looks and he begins to discern and study it. And then verse 7, the handkerchief that had been there around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. So at this point, we see that here it talks about a little bit how Jesus was wrapped. Keep in mind that it was a rush job, that there with Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus coming to wrap the body, the body was wrapped, and what they had done is they had laid a handkerchief over the face. They laid a cloth over his face. The reason why it's important to make this note is this. There is, and always around this time of the year, there are articles that come out about the Shroud of, the, the shroud of Turin. And, and this is a, a cloth that had a man who was probably around his 30s that they say was crucified. And you have this picture of a man. You can see his face through the cloth. But you, um, and they think this might be Jesus. Well, the problem is, is that it can't be because we see that John says they wrapped his body over his face. They laid a handkerchief. Now, I'm sure it's a someone around that time, but I don't believe that it's Jesus Christ. And so we see there was this, this cloth, this handkerchief around his head, but it wasn't lying with the linen clothes, but it was folded together. Do you understand how neatly? So if a thief would come and take the body, would he take the time to rewrap the linen, lay it flat, to take this handkerchief and to, to fold it neatly off to the side? That wouldn't be something a thief would do. So as they witness this empty tomb, they witness that his, the body wasn't taken in haste, and the body is there, all the linen is there, and the body has just basically been evaporated through the linen. It has gone through the linen, and the linen is still there, just not the body. So verse 8, then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and he believed. What's interesting is this, when he first comes, he has this regard, he has this, this, this I'm just seeing it. The, the, the word in the Greek is, is a blepi, he's seeing. And then when, when, when Peter comes in, he theorizes. And, and so the, the word in the Greek is, is, is theros, and where he theorizes it. But then you have this term where it's idol. And this is what John does here. In verse 8, the other disciple who came into the tomb went in and he saw and he believed. It's interesting. They all want to say see, 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 seen, seen, seen. They use the same word in the English, but different words in the Greek. Because when he comes in, initially he sees. He kind of is regarding it. I'm just aware of it. Peter comes. He begins to study it. But now the word ido is this. It means to understand. It means to identify fully, that he grasps it now. He has a full knowledge. And so within this term, when John comes into it, now he fully understands. 
And it says this, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then the disciples went away again to their own homes. At this point, they see the resurrected Lord or they see the empty tomb. Now understand, and this is something that you don't see from the other gospels. And what you see initially is this, is that Mary had when she saw from a distance the open tomb. She went and got Peter and John, and when they ran back to the tomb, guess what? She came back with them. Mary is always wanting to be with the Lord. She didn't leave him at the crucifixion. She followed them to where the grave was. She came back early in the morning, but when she came back initially... She came back to do something. She came back to wrap the body. And what happens is she saw the, 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 the stone rolled away. She doesn't get to see the Lord. She doesn't get to see anything. But she runs and she identifies and goes and gets Peter and John. As she goes and gets Peter, John is there. They both come. Mary Magdalene follows them back to the tomb. Now, what's interesting is this. Mary wanted to do something, and I want you to make a note of something. John and Peter came to see something. She needed to do something, and what they needed to do, they wanted to get information. She says, listen, the stone is rolled away. Someone took the body. So they're like, I got to figure out what's going on here. They come to get information. And I want you to realize that no one is coming to do what? Just be with Jesus yet. Mary first wanted to minister to him, wanted to do something to him. Peter and John want to understand something from him. And I love what Jesus had said earlier in the Gospel of John, where he told about the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he made this statement in John chapter 5, verse 39. He declared this, You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. When you want information, guess what? You can get information. So I love the fact that I want you to follow this. I know it's subtle, but follow this. When Mary went to do something for Jesus, guess what? She doesn't see him. And then what happens is John and Peter come to get information. And guess what? They get information. That's all they get. But here's the key. Now in verse 11, now something radical begins to happen. Now Mary doesn't come to do something. Mary doesn't come to gain information. She doesn't come to to, to see something. She comes to get Jesus. She only has one thing in her mind. I want to see Jesus. I don't want to get something from him. I don't want to learn something. I don't want to do something for him. I just want to see him. And you know what happens? She's the only one that does. When she wants to see the Lord, she gets to experience the Lord. Peter and John wanted information. They got information, but they didn't get to experience the Lord. When she went to do something for him, she didn't even get to do what she wanted to do. Why? Because she had to go and tell Peter and John, something's going on here. Something's amiss. And she didn't get to witness the Lord. But now, all that's past and all she wants to do, and just follow with me here in in verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. 
And she saw the two angels in white sitting, one at the, the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. And now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And she said, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And I love the fact that here... <laughs> He asked us, David, whom are you seeking? She's supposing to be a gardener and said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And he said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is a teacher. And she said, Do not cling to me, for I'm not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brother and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Understand what begins to happen. I love it because Mary's waiting for Peter and John to get their data. And something's amazing because in verse 10 it says this, the disciples went away again to their own homes. They leave. Mary still doesn't Go. In the same way she didn't leave after the crucifixion, she still is like, I haven't seen Jesus, and I'm not leaving until I see. Do you understand? She has such a desire to see her Lord. And so what she does is she's, she's there, and now she stoops. And as she's weeping, she stoops down, and she looks into the tomb, and she sees Two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Now keep in mind that it wasn't that long before that Peter and John had gone into that same tomb. And what they saw was what? Linen clothes. They saw the linen and they saw the handkerchief. But they didn't want to see Jesus. They wanted information. Jesus, here's information. Mary wants to see Jesus. And so what does God do? He says, all right, let me show you some angels. Now, amazingly, when she sees the angels and they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, because they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they laid him. You understand? She sees angels and she doesn't care. She sees angels like, whoa, I'm seeing angels. And she's not satisfied with angels. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of things that the, the, the church has had these moments in its history that it begins to be angel crazy. Angel this and angel that and angels among us and the, all these things about angels. And yet she sees these two angels and she just doesn't care. She goes, I want him. They've taken away my Lord. I do not know where he is. Amazingly, as she's weeping, they ask, him, they ask her, why are you weeping? Now, this is unique. And I want you to see something here that you may not be aware of. Hopefully you are. But when Mary Magdalene looks in the tomb, what she does is this. She sees two angels. And it makes this statement, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body had lain. The reason I want you to be aware of that, because in the book of Exodus, chapter 25, when God is talking to Moses about making a place where God would meet with them, where the very glory of God would meet. You have a thing called the Ark of the Covenant, and then on top of that, it's called the mercy seat. And what happens is this. In Exodus chapter 25, 
it makes this statement in verse 17. You shall make the mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and two and a half cubits its width. And you shall make two cherubim of hammered gold. You shall make them at two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the two cherubim at the two ends of the piece with it. And the cherubim will stretch their wings above and over the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim should be towards the mercy seat. And then in verse 21, he says, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, in which was the law. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And verse 22, And there I will meet with you. Something amazing begins to happen. She sees one angel at the foot, one angel at the head. What she's seeing is this. She's seeing the representation of the mercy seat. And this is where God says, and this is where I'm going to meet with you. When you see the angels, when you recognize the cherub, understand in the midst of them is where I'm going to, you're going to see my glory. You're going to witness my glory. She sees the two angels in white. One of the, one of the head, the other at the feet where Jesus' body lay. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she sees him, and she's not content. She's not amazed. She's not anything. She just wants her Lord. They said, they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. Now, when she said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing there. Did not know that it was Jesus. Amazingly, when it says that, that, that she did not know, that term in the Greek means to theorize. She, she, she didn't have that, that study. She didn't have that, 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 that grasp and so we see here that she didn't understand, she didn't identify. And it's evident, some scholars say because she's been crying, yeah, that's a possibility. When you're crying, your eyes are all blurry and you don't see things well. And you're not sure what exactly is going on. The other is this, that they say that Jesus in his new body, that sometimes in this new body there was enough changes where they didn't look exactly like he did before. But the wounds were there. The wounds were the identifier where he could walk with his disciples. And those that had been with him, they didn't even recognize him until what? Until he, he broke the bread, they saw the wounds. And then their eyes were open to whom he was. So one of two or both of them is the issue here where she doesn't initially recognize him. She doesn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Note this. This is devotion. We've already seen that as we're looking to this passage, that, that Jesus here was a fully grown adult male. And I don't know how much he would weigh as an adult male. But let me take you to John chapter 19, verse 30. Nicodemus, who was first to come to him by night, or verse 39 of John 20, or John 19, verse 39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of birds and aloes, about 100 pounds. His body is now lathered with this as well. You understand, he's not just light. He, he's got, he's got the, these aloes and these myrrhs and everything that was there. And you have a full-grown man, and she says, just tell me where he is. I will come, and I will take him away. 
I just want to see him. And, and so it's an amazing thing that now Jesus goes and he says, Mary. There's certain terms and certain words and certain ways that are spoken that are triggered in your mind. My wife can call me, lol, 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 and I'll, sometimes I'm, I'm like, my brain isn't recognizing, my brain doesn't connect, and then she'll, LA, got my attention. She'll call me that, and, and instantly then, then I'm there. And I don't know how many times that he had said to her, Mary. And she turns and says, Rabboni. I'll tell you what, love doesn't need a whole lot of words. You know, sometimes people, they, they, they have to make up for it and they, they don't really realize what's going on. But to be honest with you, love doesn't take a whole lot of words. And what we see is this. He says to her, Mary, she recognizes and says, Rabboni. I find this interesting that Jesus doesn't reveal himself to Mary by saying, it's me. He reveals himself to Mary by saying, this is who I see you. You understand? He says, this is how I see you, Mary. Instantly, Rabboni. I love the fact that he does say, look at me, I'm, I'm Jesus. He doesn't reveal himself by saying, look at me. He reveals himself by saying, I want you to know how I see you. I see you. And then she sees him. This is what Jesus does. It's not always he's like, like, hey, show me yourself. Show me. He says, no, I want you to know first of all, I see you. I want you to know how I see you. Then you can see me. But you've got to see this first. And so he says to her, Mary, she turns and says, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And then we see this in verse 17. He says, do not cling to me. There are some older manuscripts or in the King James says, don't, don't touch me. As if, you know, you, you touch the, the resurrected Lord, you're going to die. That's not what it is. The scholars recognize that she's held on to him now. And he goes, listen, you don't have to hold on to me. Our relationship is different. You don't have to cling. There's things that you need to do. Don't cling to me. For I've not yet ascended to my father. But go and tell my brother and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father. And to my God and to your God. Now he does something unique. He does not tell them in verse 17, I'm going to our Father and to our God. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to mine and yours. My God and yours. Jesus has a different relationship with the Father than they do. And he makes a note of this. Now, what happens is this, if you have ever been approached by Jehovah Witnesses, they will use this passage in John 20, 20 to say, guess what? Jesus isn't God because he says, I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly that, that God was his father. God was his God as what? As he's a man. This is the relationship that he has. But understand that he's saying that my relationship with the Father is completely different than your relationship with the Father. 
And so you have to make note of this. He's separating him and his relationship with the Father, him and his relationship with the Father as God, then their relationship with the Father, and then what their relationship with the Father is God. Because where, where he is, his position with the Father is what? We're of the same nature, but he's still my Father, and, and, and he's still God. He is still my God. As I'm man, I'm recognizing that authority, the title that he has. And so he allows him that position. He allows him that title. And then he says, but keep in mind that his position with you and his, his title may be the same, Father and God, but his position is completely different than it is with me. So it's important to note this, that he does say, I'm going to my father and to your father, my God and your God. He doesn't clump it all into saying, I have the same relationship positionally as you do. It's different. So understand that when he talks about his father and his God, he's saying, listen, I've come as a man, and as a man, I recognize that he is Lord. He is God. He is Father, and me as a man who represents, as a man representing along with you, he is that to me. But at the same time, make no mistake that my relationship is different than you as a man because I and the Father are one. I have more than just what you have. So as he comes here, just keep in mind that Jehovah Witnesses will try to trip you up in this and, and to recognize that it's true. As a man, the Father was his Father. And the father was his God because he is fully God and he's fully man. And as a man, this is true. But he does make a distinction between his relationship and the disciples relationship, his position and the discipleship's position. He uses the same title, father and God, but the positions are distinct and different. So when the Jehovah Witnesses say he's making himself like a man, it's like, yeah, he's identifying with man, but he makes himself completely different. Do you understand? He says, my father, one relationship, one position, your father. My God, one position, one relationship, your God. So same title, two different positions, two different relationships. And so as he goes and he tells Mary, speak these truths, I love what verse 18 does. So Mary mainly came and told the disciples that she'd seen the Lord and that he'd spoken these things. Absolutely amazing. And what I want you to recognize and what I want to close with is this. It is so important that when you come to church, what do you want to do? Do you want to, do you want to just, just meet with the people and get around the people? Do you, want to, do you want to do something for Jesus? I want to come and, and I, want to, I want to just you know, hang out, check something off my, my Bible, check something off my list. I want to do something for you. Do you want to come just to get information? And I'll tell you what, <laughs> you may get information and you can check something off. But if you want to see Jesus, if you have that desire to see Jesus, I'll tell you what, you are going to experience him as he does what? As he tells you how he feels about you. This is amazing. When I come into this place and I worship, God is constantly telling me how he feels about me, the love that he has, the, the, the grace that he's poured out. When I look to his word, I realize the love that he's had and the grace that he's poured out. You realize he says, I want you to know how I see you first. So he says, come boldly to the throne of grace. 
Come, you who are redeemed. This is an amazing thing that come and meet with him. Come and seek to see him. And if you want to see him, I will tell you what. If you seek him, he will be found by you, says the Lord. So, put that in your heart and in your mind as you come into his house to seek his heart. As you come before him in prayer to seek him in prayer. As you come before him in devotions to seek him in devotions. You can do something for him. You can gain information about him. Or you could simply say, I want to see you. One fulfills you. One is, is going to give you the completeness of what you need to understand. And then you can experience him. May that be our hearts. Amen. Father, we are so grateful for this passage and how you would show us the beauty of the relationship. There is one woman, only one woman. And John, you would depict her as a worshiper, as one who loves much. People came and they went, and she stayed. And she stayed, and she stayed. <laughs> and I think that if you wouldn't revealed yourself, she would have died there, Lord. She was not going to leave until she saw you. And may we have that tenacity, Lord, to say we are going to wait until you reveal yourself. Just like the disciples did in the upper room. They waited, and they waited, and they waited in one place with one accord until you gave the promise, until you revealed your will through the Spirit. So, Father, help us to be those who tenaciously seek you and you alone. Not doing things for you, not data from you, but to seek you and the intimacy with you. May that be our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.